Welcome to the All In Gospel Bible Study. Each week, we move chapter by chapter through the Bible towards a comprehensive understanding of what the Bible teaches. All In Gospel is recorded live in White Bear Lake, Minnesota, featuring Dr. Sean Dickers. You can support this broadcast by subscribing or donating at the allingospel.com website. and running. So we're in Matthew 13, picking up where we left off. On the same day, Jesus went out of the house and sat by the sea. And great multitudes were gathered together to him so that he got into a boat and sat. And the whole multitude stood on the shore. And then he spoke many things to them in parables. Now, Jesus has been rejected by the religious establishment. He takes it outdoors. The crowds have followed him in the last chapter. And it says on the same day, so we know from chapter 12 that he was in the synagogue with the Pharisees, so it's likely this is on the Sabbath that this is happening, because they were yelling at him about picking grain on the Sabbath, remember that? So that's our context. Um, So this is all happening on the same day, and he proceeds to go about doing a gathering of people to learn God's word very differently than the synagogue system. He's reinventing things. Um, And he holds an outdoor service. So probably there are people that got angry about this. How dare a teacher sit in a boat? Um, You know, but there's some practical applications here. When you're on the water, your voice carries amazingly well. It's a natural acoustic. So Jesus starts doing things that, I mean, I would argue, he just started being practical and doing this sort of thing. So when you got this press of the great multitude, verse 2, there's all these people there. He does some things that make a lot of sense. So he, um, he holds a beach church service, so there's plenty of room for people. People aren't cast out or left out of it. Um, and they gather and they start doing their synagogue right there on the beach. This would have further enraged the Pharisees that we started ticking off in the last chapter. Um, so this, again, it's just building this conflict with the religious establishment. It says, he sat and the multitude stood. This flips the traditional Jewish meeting format. Do you catch that? Normally, it's the teacher that stands and the multitude that sits. Um, But for Jesus, it's the opposite, and he flips that around. And then he starts telling parables, verse 3. We get a new Greek word. Uh, In Greek, it's parable. So, you know, we just take the Greek word and use it because it's a different kind of thing. Um, And he changes the way he teaches. So he changes where he teaches, how he teaches, the positioning of him in the audience when he teaches. And then we get this thing called a parable, which is a symbolic narrative, or it juxtaposes two situations. In telling parables, these Pharisees that are trying to get him to say blasphemy, he can just say, I'm just talking about farming. Like at the end of the day, they can't accuse him of anything because he's not directly talking about things. So he starts to talk in these kind of parables or mysteries, um, and he puts them all together for them. So they're gonna, he's going to teach his disciples how to understand parables in this chapter. And that's what we should learn, too, as we go through this chapter. How do you understand a parable, and how do you put this together? So part of the parable, and the way the parables get done, is images get used, but there's usually what I would call a key or like a a lock. So on a cipher, you get a page that's full of garbledy gook, but when you know what the key is, you can start to decipher it and uncode it. So what he does with his parables is he gives you one key or one element, and you have to use your brain to piece together the rest. 
And so we're going to learn that and how he does that today. There's 30 to 40 parables throughout the New Testament, depending on how you count them. Um, they tell you a story and they leave you with a quandary. And so the entire point of a parable is for the listener to use their brain and to think. So Jesus doesn't always tell the answers. He doesn't interpret all of his parables, but he expects that his believers through the Holy Spirit will understand exactly what they're talking about. So you get people that aren't believers that read the Bible and they're like, I don't even know what this is about anymore. And that's by intention because there's some teachings that we got in the Sermon on the Mount that were super clear and direct. You have to come to follow Jesus as your king. So a lot of times with people that are seeking or trying to figure out the Bible, I would say read Matthew 1 through 12. But until you get saved, it, there's not much point reading past chapter 12 because it doesn't make a lot of sense. And it, and it shouldn't by design. Um, but once you can accept or see Christ as your king, <coughs> excuse me, and see him as your savior, then, then these parables start to explain how life is in the kingdom. So the first parable, the sower, the parable of the sower, and I'm guessing most of us know this parable already, um, and we'll kind of move through it here fairly quick. Saying, behold, a sower went out to sow. And as he sowed, some seed fell by the wayside, and the birds came and devoured them. And some fell on stony places where they didn't have much earth. And immediately they sprang up because they had no depth of earth. But when the sun was on them and they were scorched because they had no root and they withered away. And some fell among the thorns and the thorns sprang up and choked them. But others fell on good ground. They yielded a good crop, some a hundredfold, some 60, some 30. So Jesus uses these common images. Sowing and farming would have been an extremely common vocation in the first century. It was a agrarian culture. They either herded animals or they grew crops. So we have to learn something about first century um, sowing. They did not have uh, tractors and combines that would plant their seeds with little depth pressers and all that sort of thing. They would go out and walk the field and literally take a bag of seed, put their hand in it, and just sprinkle that seed and throw it back and forth and try to give some kind of scatter it evenly if they could. Um, but when you just take a handful of seed and throw it in front of you, some of it's going to land in different places. So what he's talking about here, these different landing pads um, for the seed have everything to do with something that would be really familiar to most of the people in the society. In fact, you often get kids to go out and throw the seed and to do that just because of the energy it took. Um, so most people listening to Jesus would have known these different locations and they would have known how seeds acted. It's Another thought is, Maybe God created the entire universe so we could understand these parables. Like he created farming and seeds to give us a model of what the kingdom looks like so he could tell these kinds of stories. Uh, we'll have to ask God when we get to heaven. But in the scattering, what varies isn't the seed or the sower. What varies is where the seed lands. And this is an important thing for people that are believers, those that are already following Jesus to understand because we're supposed to go out and, sh and spread the seed. And we're supposed to be able to do that. So when Jesus says this, it's not just true for seeds and farmers. It's also true as a spiritual phenomena. And that's the part we got to decode. So let's look at the four different ways. There's waysides, uh, which are roads or walkways. Uh, there's stones, there's thorns, and there's good ground. Four different spots. And the sowing then becomes valuable even though you hit some seeds in bad spots. So a good farmer would know that. You're going to 
the reason it's valuable is that last verse, right? Because sometimes the seed lands in the right spot and you get fruit, 100-fold, 60-fold, different fruit, different people. So Jesus gives his explanation below. I'm not going to get into those four different areas, but for now, just hold on to them. Um, he then talks about why he's telling parables, which I think is a good way to kind of start the chapter. He who has ears to let him hear. Grant, that's not corn ears. That's actual human ears so that you... Okay. He who has ears... To hear, let him hear. And the disciples came to him. Why do you speak to them in parables? Like, why are you doing this? And he answered them says, because it's been given to you to know the mysteries of the kingdom of heaven, but to them it's not been given. For whoever has, to him will be given more, and he will have abundance, but to whoever does not have, even when what he has will be taken away from him. Therefore I speak in parables. Because seeing they don't see and hearing they don't hear, nor do they understand. And in them the prophecy of Isaiah is fulfilled, which says, Hearing you will hear and shall not understand. Seeing you will see and not perceive. For the hearts of this people have grown dull, and their ears are hard of hearing, and their eyes have closed. Lest they should see with their eyes and hear with their ears, lest they should understand with their hearts and turn, so that I should heal them. But blessed are you, for your eyes see and your ears hear. For assuredly, I say to you that many prophets and righteous men desire to see what you see, and they didn't see it, and they don't hear it. They don't hear what you hear and, and did not hear it. Okay, so he who has ears, let him hear. We just got done with the Pharisees rejecting and blaspheming the Holy Spirit, which is they saw the work of the Holy Spirit, and then they critiqued it because they can't see that what's good's good. Remember last week? there's good trees that bear good fruit. And Jesus was trying to tell them, look, if I'm casting out demons, that's good fruit. You should recognize that the source of that is also good. So these are the people he's talking about that are dull and don't see and don't hear. It's these people that are seeing the work of God and they just reject it and they put it away. I think everything in our flesh wants to reject the work of God when we see it for the first time and when we encounter it. Because our flesh doesn't want anything to do with it. Our ears will actually hear things, but we don't actually hear them. And so Jesus is kind of talking about the purpose of the disciples here. The disciples then ask a question in verse 10. Why do you speak in parables? The point of parables is to get people to ask questions. And there's a little bit of trust that that person you're talking to has a brain. And they're able... So when you say things that they don't understand, it actually invites a conversation about those things. This is, I think, the first kernel of culture shifting that a believer can do. When we go out of this room today and we talk to people about the parable of the seeds and the sower and they're not in the word and they haven't heard that parable, then they, the natural instinct of a thinking human is to say, wait, what, what are you talking about with seeds and sowing? And so when we talk about the things of God, there's an abundance of our heart, verse 12, that comes out and those people that hear it can then ask about it right? Notice that the hearing and the seeing in verse 14 and 15, these dull-hearted people, the point of all that at the end of verse 15 is so that I should heal them. Sometimes giving or walking away from people is actually the best thing you can do to love them. And I think what he's doing with the Pharisees here isn't just damnation of the Pharisees. The point is that they should actually, that they can turn lest they should understand with their hearts in turn so that I should heal them. Like, that's the point of all this. There are some people, and I, if, I don't know, I struggle with this myself, but there are some people 
that Jesus sees that they reject the Holy Spirit and he just walks away. And he goes, and that's so hard to do when it's somebody you love. It's a lot easier to do when it's just somebody you bump into on the street. But for somebody you care about, it's hard to do that. But sometimes that idea of like, it's not even worth talking to you about it because all you're going to do is continue to blaspheme Jesus. So it's not worth the conversation. But I still have a lot of joy in my life and I'm going to still go off and do things with other believers and I'm going to still be a person that pursues Jesus with my heart, mind, and soul. I think that that tugs at people's hearts a little bit. Uh, and, and we see Jesus doing that. In fact, that's the entire purpose of these beautiful parables that he tells is to get people to ask questions because they're not asking questions. They think they know everything already. So there's a new kingdom, a new king, a new Messiah, a new way to do Sabbath church. And now there's a new way to talk about salvation with people in these parables. And Jesus puts new wine and he's starting to build the wineskin for it. So... Um, he says in verse 10, these things that are given to you, part of the teaching of Jesus, and I just think it's important to understand, it's not Christmas right now, but it's important to understand a parable like the sowers and seeds, it's a gift. God gave us a present when he gave us these parables. These are absolute treasures that we can store up in our hearts so we can tell them to people. Verse 12, whoever has will be given more. Whoever doesn't have gets actually that taken away from them. This is a cyclical mentality that he has. Those people that accept Christ, that's just the beginning. They're actually going to get more from that point forward. It's just the start when you get saved. And there's a generative aspect to where when we're in the Word of God and we ask about these parables and we study them, we actually get stronger over time. When we're saved is probably the weakest point in our walk with Christ. Maturity is what builds that strength over time. Um, so there's more to come, and I, and I see that perspective just building here. We have thoughts that God gives us. They turn into choices. Those things turn into habits, which turns into actually who you are. And that works in growth, but it also works in degradation. Those who don't listen to Jesus, they will get even what they have taken away from them. The thoughts, choices, habits, you has a degenerative effect as much as it has a generative effect. And the hope of Jesus is that people have that and they go through it. So in verse 13, therefore, Jesus has a purpose in all of this, and that is to train his own servants without alarming the Pharisees, without giving them anything they can put their teeth in. So this idea of Christianese, right? Christians develop their own language. Non-Christians, this can bother them. What do you mean you're drinking the blood and eating the bread of Christ, right? This language we put around things, the symbolism that we put around things, we actually learn it from our teacher, Jesus. And we learn this language that we have. The key is to not let that language then alienate people. The key is that that language gets people to ask questions. So each generation of believers, each revival that happens, they start to learn how to communicate their faith in new ways. So when you study the history of Christianity, you see new phrases coming up and new terms because God helps us to build languages around what we can than have or, or use. They do not hear, nor do they understand. Jesus wasn't going to waste his, hot, his time on hard hearts. And it's not worth it to Jesus. I wonder how worth it it should be to me. And that's not to say to ignore people, and that's not an excuse to not evangelize. But it is something to say that Jesus didn't pound on people that were rejecting the gospel. He, he would then let them not understand, and he was okay with that for a season. Something had to happen in their heart as they move forward. So 
spreading the seed everywhere, but understanding something about the heart that we get. And that's actually the parable that Jesus gives before and explains after he talks about parables. So this parable of the sower is about how people hear or understand the word of God. And he's giving us the key to the cipher when he says this. So this explanation of what he's doing here. 15, the, uh, the hearts of the people have grown dull. In the Hebrew or in the Greek, that word actually, or he's, he's, it is the Hebrew. He's quoting Isaiah, but in Isaiah, that word dull is actually translated fat. So of the fat-hearted or the obese or overeating. Uh, so the hearts of people have grown fat-hearted. They think they're more than they are. They're puffed up beyond what, what the real meat of life is. Or they're overeating spiritual candy. Blessed are your eyes. There's benefits to being a believer and understanding it. And the benefits are you can see, think, and hear clearly. And those things are part of the benefits of it. So there's an insider's perspective and an outsider's perspective, even unto the Word of God, even to Jesus' parables. As believers, we have to understand that because we have to make our language simple so that people can understand it because they don't understand it like we do. They're hard-hearted, they're blind, they're deaf. And sometimes our actions are going to speak louder than our words, but we have to think when we do use words, are they clear and are they simple so people can understand what we're talking about? And we're not just throwing jargon at them, right? Blessed are your eyes. You know, there's a lot of prophets in the Old Testament, they never got to meet Jesus in this kind of way that Jesus is, is teaching these disciples, to hang out with them for three years. Like even in the Christophany moments in the Old Testament, Jesus would show up for a short period of time, guide somebody in a direction, but Jesus is going to be with these disciples for three years. So he's been teaching them for a long time. And he's basically saying like, blessed are your eyes because I'm here and you get it. And, and what a, you know, there's people all through the Old Testament would have loved to be there in the first century. I would have loved to be there in the first century and be able to just follow Jesus around and hang out with him. Verse 18 Jesus is going to explain his parable. He's going to give us the key. Therefore, hear the parable of the sower. He just got done about hearing and, and being able to hear. Hear what I'm saying with the sower. The, so, the goal of the sower is to get fruit. So Eric Wetter, a friend of mine, gave a whole sermon on this one parable, and he's a farmer. So he talked about it from the farmer's perspective. It was outstanding. It was just a joy. The best way to get fruit is get as much seed out there as possible. Period. If you're a believer and you never talk about your beliefs, you never share with people around you, you just aren't going to get as much fruit. But the people that are constantly sharing their faith and engaging with people about things of God, the, the people that can get to a deep conversation quickly, they're simply going to see more fruit because they put more seed out there. Farmers work for bounty. Believers should also work for bounty. This is all coming from Eric. Um, the idea of you work six days a week and you rest one day a week, when it comes to a farmer's perspective or even work in the kingdom, one way to think about Sabbath is this is the day where we congregate with each other. And we're not necessarily on the job on Sabbath. This is the one day we can relax, study the word for ourselves, get God's fruit in our life so that we can go out into the world for six days and just be throwing seed all the time. We go back to work. So farmers work for bounty. It's good for us to hear this. So we have asked, here's another thought on the parables. When we read this parable, one way to look at this parable is how we share the word with people. Another way to look at this parable is what aspect is my heart looking like these different places that the seed lands? Like at some level, we all have stony hearts. We all have wayside hearts. 
at some degree and how do we manage that in our own heart. But here it is, verse 19. This is Jesus' explanation of the parable. When anyone hears the word of the kingdom and does not understand it, then the wicked one comes and snatches away what was sown in his heart. This is he who received the word by the wayside. But he who received the seed on stony places, this is he who hears the word and immediately receives it with joy, yet he has no root in himself. He only endures for a while. For when tribulation or persecution arises because of the word, immediately he stumbles. <clears throat> now he who received seeds among the thorns and is he who hears the word and cares of this world and the deceitfulness of riches choke the word and he becomes unfruitful. But he who received the seed on good ground is he who hears the word and understands it, who indeed bears fruit and produces some a hundredfold, some sixty, some thirty. So, so when Jesus talks, like it is, you have to absorb this. And for me, the best way to absorb it is just go back through it word by word. What is he saying here? Because his words are are divinely inspired. Four ways that the word of the kingdom, verse nineteen, the seed is the word of the kingdom. It is the gospel message. Uh, the word of the kingdom in particular would be that there is a new kingdom with a new king and a new way to live. So people are going to hear that and they're going to receive it differently. Four ways, wayside, stones, thorns, and good ground. Wayside, stones, thorns, and good ground. We're going to go through each one. Wayside. When you got a road or a, a wayside is where people would walk, people trample it down. So the day-to-day -day living a life just tramples down the heart. The older somebody gets, the harder the ground gets because they've lived more life. And as we share the word with people, we should know that, that, that some people have a hard time hearing things just because they've lived life one way for so long. And that heart gets, just like a wayside, it gets packed down tight. So they're completely seeing the world through the eyes of the wicked one uh, when they do this. So a wayside person might say something like, all that matters in my life is career, retirement, family demands, my self-actualization, or I just want to have fun. That's what I'm doing. That's what I've been doing for so long. I don't need any other religion in my life. They're just hard to the message of religion. If our gospel is hidden, 2 Corinthians 4, it's hid to them that are lost, in whom the God of this world has blinded the minds of them which don't believe, lest the light of the glorious gospel of Christ, who is the image of God, should sign into them. Think of it as windows that have been well caulked. These people are hardened against God, but they've sealed the gaps to even get into their heart. And that's one of those things where, like, Jesus is recognizers, people like this. The first line of, of defense for Satan, for the, for the kingdom to not grow, is that he stops people from ever hearing the word in the first place. They're not going to go to church and show up at a church. They're not going to hear it when you bump into them on the street or you're talking to them in the grocery line. They want nothing to do with it, and they will react violently or verbally violently against what you have to say. They're not going to let the word take root because they give it no gaps or no spaces. So this, uh, yeah, so the permissive church is, is then to skip or abandon the word to start with, like secular hard-hearteds, but there's also a legalistic church that's hard against the work of the Holy Spirit from the beginning too, right? So, Satan can cause harm either way with the hard heart. Uh, people that have no understanding when they're spoken to. Remember, Jesus is reacting to Pharisees right now, people who call themselves godly, and they're the ones he's referring to, kind of with this hard heart. So then you get the stony, the stony ground. 
So there's a, a stone under the ground. We'll see this when we go to Glacier. And on top of it, there's a really thin layer of soil. So soil that goes a half inch deep, one deep. So now we've got, we had the hard hearted. Now we get the shallow hearted. So they, these are the people and we've seen them. They'll show up, they'll hear a good Bible study and their minds are just blown. And they're like, that's the coolest thing in the world. That's amazing. This is the greatest thing ever. And then you never see them again. Or you say a prayer of salvation with them and they're really excited. And the next day they go to a Super Bowl party and then you never hear from them again, right? There's this initial, oh, this is great. So their hearts aren't resistant to it. They're actually willing to talk about it and get into it, but they don't endure. The word there, endure, in the Greek is esti. It means to be. They don't change their existence. They've heard it. They're open to it, but they, their existence is only for a little while. And again, a while there in the Greek is proskarios, temporary, a season, a fad, a whim. They may even come to church for two months, but it was just a fad. It never took root. It never dug in. So the roots of that little seed are trying to dig down, but they keep hitting rocks everywhere. The rocks of this life have to be intentionally pulled out to have good soil. That comes from the farming example. Farmers spend a lot of time getting rocks out of their soil because they mess with the root development. Anything from your old life that stays in your life is going to mess with the ability of the Word of God to take root in your life. And it just slows that process down, stunts it. And then when the sun hits, tribulation, like those plants, because they don't get a water source, the living water of the Word of God, because there's no water coming into their roots, the sun scorches them, burns them up, and they just fry. And there's nothing left of those plants. The word, again, all these words I'm giving you are like, First time we see them in the Bible words, right? Jesus just loaded this parable with major concepts that we're going to see throughout the New Testament. But the word tribulation, first use. Philipsis is a, and I thought this was interesting. The word tribulation actually means pressure. Any source, anything that pressures someone that hears the word of God. Anything in life that is a burden to your soul will get in the way or be a stone when it comes to the Word of God. Then he used the word persecution, which pretty much means persecution. It's an actual attack against the person that's just accepted Christ. You get, you get excited about hearing about Christ, you go tell all your friends, and then your friends call you an idiot. What are you doing? Have a beer. Like, join us. You know, like, what do you, why would you do that? And you think, boy, what kind of friends are you? You'd rather I burn in hell and have fun with you than go to heaven and stop doing these really idiotic things. Like, what kind of friends are those? But that's the pressure can be a neutral source. Persecution's almost always a negative source. But then for the great tribulation, since as was not since the beginning of the world to this time, nor shall ever be. In Matthew 24, Jesus talks about the end of days. And this is interesting. He doesn't use the word persecution for Christians. He uses the word tribulation. He uses the word pressure. And I, and I think to the degree to which our world is shifting and changing, it's not that they're attacking Christians, they're putting pressure on Christians in different ways. They're making us feel anxiety and stress and, and pressure. The initial acceptance has to endure, esti. It has to redis, resist the pressure, and it has to ignore negative feedback. The only way you do that is if your ground is, is you get the stones out of your life. And you can take root. This is my fear sometimes about simply saying, all you have to do is say this one prayer and you're good to go. That you're setting up stony ground people because then they say the one prayer, they're all excited and they go back to their stones. They go back to a hard way of life. 
and, 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 it's, and, and the root has to be there or you're really not bearing crops or fruit. You're just getting a lot of seeds thrown on stony ground and you're wasting your time. So it looks like a plant, but there's no root underneath it, so it stumbles. It literally, the word stumbles there is to trip up. And stumbles is a reference, or should be to a Jewish listener, a reference to the roads of refuge that were supposed to be kept free of stones. And they're supposed to be kept free of stones, so somebody's running to Jesus or running to a city of refuge, they don't trip and they never fall. So as believers in the church, Satan loves, the first strategy is make it so they won't even hear the word. But if then you get stony ground, they've heard the word and they're excited about it. The second strategy of Satan is to use post-salvation sin to discourage somebody and shame them away from the church. Ah, man, I just, I can't do this. I can't make the changes that need to be made. And you know what the church does? We just sit and pounce on those people and accuse them of, well, you got to think this way and you got to change this and you got to fix this. I got a list of 20 things you need to fix because now you're a Christian. And we don't let those people grow through a natural spiritual development process between them and the Holy Spirit. So Satan adores when we do that to people because we're not only are we not helping to remove the stone that's in their way, we're trying to remove the whole field of stones at once. And that's overwhelming to people. And they don't want to do it. So to stumble is embarrassing. Have you ever tripped in front of your friends? You get all red-faced and you just feel like a nut. You just feel like ridiculous. Satan can use that embarrassment to make it so people never want to come back to a church. And it's sad when that happens. But when we stumble in sin, there has to be a grace that's shown to people. Not a permission of sin. I'm not saying that at all but a grace with those people so that they're willing to come back to a, a body because they know that they're with a bunch of people that trip all the time. And we're all trippers, not in a 60s way, but in a stone-in-the-road way. Like, we're doing it all the time. And when you can laugh about it and take joy about it and sin no more and move forward, that's, builds, that's roots going deep into the ground. And what nourishes is it is hearing the Word of God. Faith comes by hearing, hearing comes by the Word of God. And so when, we, when somebody gets saved and they're all excited, get them into a body of believers, get them into a place where they're hearing the word of God or they're just going to shrivel up and die. Like set a clock. It'll be like two, three weeks, right? If they're not connecting, they're not learning, they're not going to grow. Verse 22 talks about thorns. So here's a third one. We share the gospel with somebody. They have not pushed us away and chased us off with sticks. They are excited about it and, and they come into the church um, and they actually stick around for a while. So now we get thorns. People interested and open to the word, but I'm going to say these are what we call lukewarm Christians. These are people that they just can't make the time for it. Oh, I love Jesus. He's awesome, but I got this thing I got to do. I got this other thing I got to do. Now, the danger of teaching on this is people are going to think I'm like trying to give guilt trips here. But there is a point where individually between me and Jesus... We had to make decisions that Jesus comes before all the thorns. We had to. Me and God had to make that decision. It took me 20 years, right? But the thorns of this world will clog spiritual fruit in every way, shape, and form. And Satan, this is his third attack. If he can't get you on sealing the gaps in the windows, if he can't get you with stones in the road and getting you to stumble, he's going to get you by just giving you other concerns that block out the work of the gospel. And those concerns are often good things. Like Steph and I talk about this a lot. One of the ways Satan attacks a mature believer is he gives you really good opportunities to do things that have nothing to do with teaching the Word of God. 
But in every other sense, they're very good, noble things to be doing. But Satan would love to have you doing good, noble things and not see another person come into the kingdom because of you. He loves that. So distractions, thorns. Thorns also um, catch in your clothing and they hook you. So they slow you down as a farmer. So those, those brambles are weeds. They grow fast. You can pull them all out and you come back to the next week and there's all the buckthorn in your woods again. That's the nature of thorns and weeds is they just keep coming back up. So for believers, we may think we got all those thorns out last year, but we got to constantly be cleaning our fields of the thorns. So to what degree is our heart doing that? So you hear the word, which means you're showing up at a church where the Bible's getting taught, right? So out of these, there's three categories that actually show up and hear the word of God. It's only the first one that doesn't hear it. So they hear the word of God, then the care of the world. In Greek, the cares are the marimna. Frankly, I just like these Greek words, marimna, anxieties. Anything we spend our attention on would be a care. And it can be good or bad. It's not, a, it's not necessarily an evil thing that we care about. Um, you can care about cleaning your house. And you clean your house so much, you miss the fact that Jesus is hanging out in the living room teaching the gospel with all your friends. And that's the story of Mary and Martha, right? So even good things like cleaning the house can get in the way of what God's called you to do. And I'm not saying be sloppy. I'm saying that you can't live for that. It can't be something that snags you when, the, when something's happening in the kingdom. The dece- and then he lists the deceitfulness of, deceitfulness of riches. So there's the cares of the world. There's the deceitfulness of riches as two different items. Deceitfulness of riches is just accumulating things. I can't, I can't go to Bible study consistently every work week because I got to work. I, and again, I'm not trying to accuse, but that's Satan trying to get you into an inconsistent pattern around the word of God. So when people say that, and oh, I can't come to church on Sunday, it's like, okay, well, there's a church that has Wednesday night Bible study. That seems to be your Sabbath now. Get out to the, but be consistent every week to be in the word of God and get that regular feeding that you need to have. Or it'll choke the word of God. And the, the idea of choking there is I want to do it, but I can't. I want to breathe but I can't breathe. I want to drink water, but I'm choking. I can't drink water. And when you choke the word of God, it's basically you don't have time for it. So you've got 24 hours in a day, which equals how many hours in a week? Even if you sleep for eight hours, good healthy night's sleep, you still have 16 hours in a day. Yet God asks for us to do church, which for us is long. Like we do like three, four hours of Bible study on a Sunday. But think of that as a percentage of your time over the week. Yet people can't find time for Bible study. You know, even if you have a 16-hour waking day, I don't have, I don't, you don't have 15 minutes to read the Word every morning to yourself. Maybe a half hour. Some believers like, you know, we, we, uh, heroes of the faith would study the Bible for two hours, three hours every day in the morning. They'd get up early and do it. So if we're not willing to give anything to God, why would we be surprised when there's no fruit in our life? We may, have, we may believe in Jesus and we're still on our way to heaven and that's great, but there's so much more than just being on the way to heaven. There's a life abundant waiting to happen. So if you want the life abundant, you've got to make time for the word. You shall bow down yourself. You shall not bow down yourself to them nor serve them for I'm the Lord God and I am a jealous God, Exodus 25. Deuteronomy 11:13. I command you this day to love the Lord your God and serve him with all your heart and with all your soul, yet we can't give him 15 minutes a day. 
or I should say I. Again, I'm not trying to accuse. This is the truth of this parable, that choking the word of God is just as effective as the hard-hearted. It's just as effective for Satan as the shallow, that just that doesn't take root. Um, to give us something else or a good second place is an absolutely wonderful tactic by the enemy. It just gets in the way of what we're doing. Praise the Lord for people that just live for Christ and nothing else gets in the way. Lord, help me to get everything else in my life that gets in the way out of the way. Any commitment, any obligation, anything in this world, if it gets in the way of getting seed out there and sharing the word with people, just help me get rid of it. Another danger, and I'll speak to this, excited believers that are on good ground and they're doing stuff, we're going to do this over here, this over this. And in our fellowship, we do a lot of stuff outside of Sundays. One way to look at this is then you need to go to everything. And I don't want to say that. That's You need to go to what the Holy Spirit's calling you to go to. And that idea that we somehow feel guilted into doing everything and nothing else matters leads to people without retirement funds and people that haven't planned for life. And God clearly tells us to work six days. And part of that work is to feed our families and to take care of things. Why don't I just want to do Jesus stuff? I want to go to my church and ask for money so I can do all this other stuff. But you've never established yourself in the world either. And now you're a burden to other people. Paul was proud of the fact that he was never a burden when, when he went to teach the word to people. He had a profession. He could make tents. So he would make tents, pay for his food, pay for a place to live. To get the basic needs of life is our obligation under God. Uh, and, and to say that, that, well, I don't want to get caught up with the thorns. No, earning an income for yourself is not thorns. That's a basic provision for yourself in life. It's to take care of yourself. But to live for those things is a thorn and it slows you down. And, and that's one of those things we're finding that balance and discernment. Again, parables make us think. They don't tell us all the answers. But the point here is to become fruitful. Um, and he just got done talking about bad trees and good trees. He just wants us to not be dead trees, right? So to become unfruitful, that's what the thorns do. They make it so you never bear fruit. You never see people getting saved. You never see the Holy Spirit act. You wouldn't believe how many people I talked to at university that they'd gone to church their whole life and they've just never seen anything happen with the Holy Spirit. What kind of church are you going to, Right? If the Holy Spirit's not moving, why are you going there? Because there's no point in going to a church where the Holy Spirit never moves. You know, we want to see people get healed. We want to see people accept Christ as their Savior. We want to see people grow and mature in their faith. We want to see people then become people that are abundant, and they're actually out having people help come into the, the kingdom too. So if those things aren't happening, like it's time to move on. You're lukewarm. Your whole church is lukewarm. You are an entire congregation of people caught up in the thorns of this world. You know, and if you get more people showing up to your Super Bowl party for the church than you do for a Bible study, that's a danger sometimes. And it happens all the time. Here we are on Super Bowl Sunday. Praise the Lord for people that are studying the Word on Super Bowl Sunday. I didn't even know it was Super Bowl Sunday until you said it this morning. Like, that's how clueless we are about that kind of thing. Not that there's anything wrong with watching some TV once in a while. But it could be a thorn. As a church, we let lukewarm people stick around in our church. We just do. You don't kick them out. You don't guilt them. At some point, they got to decide they want more life, and they got to go out and start pulling out some thorns. At some point, you got to do it. So, again, as a church, in the same way that we can scare off the shamed, rocky, stone, shallow people, 
we can also do something similar with lukewarm people. I think with the lukewarm people, we just ignore that. So when they start talking about the concerns of this world, we just glaze over and walk on and go talk to somebody else about Jesus. And at some point they feel like, how come I'm not connecting with anybody here? And the reason you're not connecting is because you, you never want to talk about the Lord. And that's what we're here to do on this. This time is sacred time. We're here to talk about the kingdom. We're here to talk about our problems. We're not here to pretend that we're perfect or we got everything figured out. It's not the point of Sundays. This is the insider's time to get ready for the week to go back out and do things. The hope is for the lukewarm is that, that someday they're going to want more and they're going to live to do that. And then you get to 23, the good ground. <laughs> Praise the Lord for the good ground. These are people that they receive it, just like the storms and thorn people receive it. But unlike the wayside or the stones or the thorns, their ground is open, it's loose, they're ready to hear, they're ready to understand. Those seeds find a little crack in the soil and the roots go straight down into the ground. And these are people that like, all I want is to come in and hear the word. The good ground is more often populated by people that are broken. As the nature of broken soil, as a farmer, you've got to break the soil before you plant the seed. Sometimes God breaks people before they can hear the word of God. The heart has to be broken. And you'll find this is why sometimes some of the best places to share, to throw your seeds are nursing homes, prisons, uh, teen challenge camps, youth camp. Sometimes the places to throw that seed is, has the best fruit when you throw it with people that realize that their life has come to a, 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 they're under their own power, their life hasn't amounted to much. Or you go to younger people where they haven't hardened their hearts over time. They don't have entanglements of this world. I don't know a lot of five-year-olds that worry about their 401k, right? So it's just one of those things where if you want to bear fruit, this soft ground kind of person is, you got to kind of go after the right kind of person sometimes. And the Lord's got to do a work with people. So the good ground people, of course, we welcome them into our church. One of the dangers with the good ground people is we put them to work on five different ministries at the same time. And they burn out, right? The good, you can do that sometimes. Or you try to harvest those people too early. You know, we need to get you doing this and we need to get you doing that. And suddenly you're plucking the bud off the, the, the fruit before it's ripe and before it's ready. So the word gets shared with tons of people. But man, when the word gets shared with the right person, with the right heart, in the right ground that's ready to die to themselves to support this new seed and let it grow in their heart, then what comes out of that sometimes is, is the fruit of that is 130, 40 times. I like how Jesus has different numbers for the fruit. Like, don't miss that. Different people produce different amounts of fruit in different ways. And there's nothing wrong with that. We don't all have to be Billy Graham. But we do all need to be throwing seed, and we do all need to be watching where we throw it and being somewhat prudent about what happens to that seed after it hits the soil. So... We ask ourselves in two ways, what kind of soil do I have in my heart? Do I bear fruit? Are there people that are growing closer to Jesus because I'm in their life? And how can I help make that happen? What has God given me that makes Jesus get the glory and that I can give him the glory? And I think for different personality types, that plays out in very different ways. I'll be interested to talk about it afterwards. And also, here's a natural question that comes out of this parable. 
why would you raise up crops if when you're just throwing seed out, the, the thing that's going to grow with your seed are a bunch of weeds? So what's the point of throwing all this seed when you've got weeds that pop up in the middle of it? All these thorns. So why would you let the thorns stick around with the good crops, right? Because those thorns get the entanglement of the world, but there's still a plant growing there. Why would you let the lukewarm just hang around in your church? Why not say, look, if you're not involved, we want to get you out of this church and you kick 80% of the people out of your community because they're not doing anything, right? You get angry at people that don't do things. What's the point of all that? And the point is twofold. One, the hope is those people eventually become, that soil breaks up and they become good fruit-bearing people, that it takes time to mature. And they don't look any different than the tares that are going to get burnt up at the end. They don't look any different. So in the next parable, Jesus answers that question. Why would you let them grow up together? And here's the answer. And again, these parables go together. They're sequential. And one kind of explains the next. Verse 24, another parable he put forth to them, saying, The kingdom of heaven is like a man who sowed good seed in his field. But when the man slept, his enemy came and sowed tares among the wheat and then went his way. And when the grain had sprouted and produced a crop, then the tares also appeared. So the servants of the owner came to him and said, Sir, did you not sow good seed in your field? How then is it that you have tares? And he said to them, An enemy has done this. And the servants said to him, Do you want us to go and gather them up? But he said, No, lest while you gather up the tares, you also uproot the wheat with them. Let both of them grow together until the harvest. And at that time of harvest, I'll say to the reapers, First gather together the tares and bind them in bundles to burn them but gather the wheat into my barn. We do not need to, as believers, decide who the wheat and the tares are. And here's the thing with tares. In the, they're likely talking about a plant called a darnel in the first century. A darnel, when it grew, looked identical to wheat. They're both green, like this bright green color. They come up in thin shoots. And until they flower, you can't tell the difference between a darnel and a wheat. They're both, they look like green grass. The lawn looks the same. So parables make singular points, and we know that by how they represent things. They leave a lot of room for interpretation. I'll give you my two cents on this one. Where 19 through 23 is about the word of God going out, this is about people growing. So the kingdom of heaven is like a man who sowed good seed in his field. Um, and, I, and I think we saw in the first one, behold, a sower went out to sow in verse so the key or the, the, the unlocker of this parable changes just a little bit here. So if the kingdom of God is like a man who sowed good, feed in his, good seed in his field, um, and the first one in verse 19, anyone who hears the word of the kingdom is the key to that one. This one's about, you know, all these seed growing up and what, what's that going to look like. So the kingdom of heaven then becomes something God's in charge of. We know Jesus is the king of it, and he owns it. So if the kingdom of heaven is like a man sowing good seed in his field, the going out of the word or the seed, because we got the key for the seed in the last parable, right? It's the word of God. God owns that process. We don't. And that we have to swallow our pride on that one because we think, well, I told this many people about the kingdom. I harassed my uncle Nellie about that for three years. But we don't own that process. God does a lot of things in people's lives. 
and we don't own it. God's in charge of the kingdom, and the kingdom of heaven is like a man who sowed good seed in his field. So Jesus being the king of that, he is the king or the Lord of the harvest. See the book of Ruth. So when we have impure hearts and pure hearts, both growing up in the kingdom, but they both look like the same thing to us, we don't have to sit and judge the hearts of people. We don't have to figure that out. This takes a lot of weight off my shoulders because I don't have to sit and sort out where everybody's heart is at. If they say they're following the Lord, I can just take them at their word. Great, you're following the word, let's roll. And remember while Jesus is telling this, one of the people in the audience listening to this is Judas. Even God himself raises up 12 disciples and one of them is a tear. And he doesn't sort them out until the very end. He just lets it happen because people are going to make their own choices and whether it's real or not isn't something we have to spend our time worrying about. But we can. I know a lot of Christians that worry about that. They spend a lot of time judging people an activity that should be God's and God's alone's. So God's going to wait. It's not our job to separate them. And Jesus is going to come back and explain this parable down in verse 36. But until then, he's going to give us a few more parables. Verse 31. Another parable he put forth saying, put forth saying, he put forth to them saying, I do that because I don't want to skip a word, right? Anyways, the kingdom of heaven is like a mustard seed, which a man took and sowed in his field which indeed is the least of all the seeds. But when it's grown, it's greater than the herbs and it becomes a tree so that the birds of the air come to nest in its branches. So mustard seeds, if you don't know, are like little tiny black specks. They look like a piece of dust. They're the smallest of the seeds, but they become this big thing. So the popular opinion of this parable is that the church starts small and it grows into a big thing. And the church is the mustard tree, right? That's how I heard this when I was growing up. And it became a harbor for birds or there's, you know, birds are often enemies or, or Satan's agents when we see biblical imagery. It's corruption in the kingdom that kind of rests in the branches of the mustard seed. Um, the problem that I have with that image when I was working on this is that, yes, birds are used as an image of evil, Revelations 18.2. But they're also used as an image of holiness, the dove at the ark and the dove at Jesus' baptism. So when we see things like this in the parables, I, I just want to say, let's be cautious about thinking there's a set rule on this kind of thing, that we have to understand these parables both in context and what the point of the parable is at the start of it. So the context of this parable is Matthew just got done talking about the sowers. He just got talking about wheats and tares growing up together which lends itself to birds being in the branches, right? And we know that what the seeds are because Jesus just gave us the key to that. So a mustard seed is also the word of God going out to people. And when the word of God comes up, so why would you have wheats and tares growing together? Why would you wait for them to come up together? Here we see why to do that because it's worth it. Because even the smallest seed that takes root and grows, it's totally worth it. So this pairs with, in context, again, I want to take that contextual passage first. It pairs with the idea of others, the ground yielded a good crop, some a hundredfold, some 60-fold, some 30. The mustard tree is like the hundredfold crop. This is a champion of the faith that grows up. And it grows up in this image. So 
why would we do all this stuff where we let tares and wheat grow up within the same church and we don't go trying to pluck out the tares? Because it's worth it. In the same sense that I don't want to worry about the tares because when I start making legalistic rules and start purging my church of tares, I'm also going to purge some really decent people that would have come into the kingdom eventually. Here's the flip side of that coin. Why do I wait? Because some of those people are going to grow into mustard trees. Some of those people are going to be amazing in their faith. And it's the fact that they struggle that means they're going to be able to communicate struggle to other people. Just that simple. So mustard seeds don't grow into trees. That's the other thing that they would know when they heard this that we may miss. So the kingdom of heaven is like a mustard seed, which man took and sowed in the fields, which indeed is like the least of all the seeds, but when it's grown is greater than the herbs and becomes a tree. Here's the reality. In the natural world, that's totally unnatural. Mustard seeds become bushes. They don't become trees. So critics would say, is Jesus lying here? You know, is that wrong? And he's not lying because this is a parable. And what he's explaining is there is an unnatural thing that happens with these seeds that take root and do well. And this is a beautiful thing. A, a Christian that grows and becomes even the smallest of human beings, when they grow in their faith, they grow to some level, like, and it does say greater than the herbs, but they become something that's totally unnatural, right? They become a hero of the faith that they didn't do it on their own. There's nothing in the DNA of a mustard seed that says it's going to be a tree. There's nothing in our flesh that says that we're going to be holy and righteous. It doesn't work that way. So when you look at this in context to the other parables, this mustard seed's an image of a particular Christian and what God can do with a mustard seed when he supernaturally grows it into something even more than it's made for. And it's like that with Christians. God doesn't want you to just do your best. He wants you to do his best. And he's going to use you in greater ways than you could ever use yourself. I love that idea. And then you get this idea of believers grow into a much greater thing than they're naturally made for. But then so that the birds of the air come and nest in its branches. If you don't assume that birds are an evil agent of the enemy invading the church, then you can just see, assume that these birds are just resting in a tree. Isn't it like that with mature believers? They're not just fruit unto themselves. They're a place for other people to rest. And that when you get the, the reason you let the tares and the fruit grow up together is that these people can become giving. You've ever read the story of the giving tree? Right? This mustard seed that becomes something it was never meant to be suddenly becomes a place where people can come and find rest and shelter. And, and that's what we want to be as believers. And when we check our heart, it's like, I'm not just here so that I can grow into a piece of wheat. I'm here so that I can grow into something God is way beyond my capacity to grow for, and I can be a place other people can rest. It's a, a balm to my soul when I hear people say good things about my wife. Because they'll be like, man, your wife is just wonderful. She's just giving. And I'm, th and I'm thinking that's because she's been in the Word way more than I have, right? It's the natural fruit of somebody who lets the Word of God take root and grow in their heart. They become givers. They become something more than themselves. And I just think that's beautiful. Anyways, that's an alternative way to read the mustard seed. If you like the popular opinion way or that this is an image of the church, it's a parable. You can interpret this however the Holy Spirit's going to feed your soul and get you closer to Jesus. Like, these are the things Christians can talk about, right? So, then we get to the parable of the leaven. Same thing. Hear it in context. Verse 33. 
And another parable he spoke to them. This is a one-sentence parable. I like that. The kingdom of heaven is like leaven, which a woman took and hid in three measures of, of meal until it was all leavened. I'm going to read that one more time. The kingdom of heaven is like leaven, which a woman took and hid in three measures of meal until it was all leavened. What does that mean? Okay? It just looks like cryptology, right? It's all in cipher. You have to uncipher it with the keys we've already been given. We know the kingdom of God is like a seed, but here we get this leaven. Again, in the context of the wheats and tares, the kingdom will house corruption until it's baked. And leaven throughout the Bible, there's no exceptions on leaven. It's always an image of sin, starting with Exodus 12 with Passover. So if the kingdom of God is like leaven, it means the kingdom of heaven that God's building, this church that he's going to build, there's going to be sin in the church. And, it, and, and a woman, who's the woman and what is that, is, is going to hide in three measures. When we see that, so three is complete. If you're looking at that key, perhaps there's something there. But just like the mustard tree, three measures is not natural. It's not a normal thing. For a first century Hebrew, that would have stuck out just like the mustard seed becoming a tree. It wouldn't have made sense. You don't, th this is like, the only time you'd use three measures of leaven in any kind of loaf of anything is if you're making bread for like a hundred people. This would be an entire day's worth of bakery, right? So when a woman took and hid three measures of, of meal till it was all leaven, this is like somebody in a house making food for hundreds. It doesn't make a lot of sense. Does that make sense? Right? This is just an unnatural image that Jesus is giving us. So the hidden corruption is like a field that grows up with tears in it. Both of these parables were given in context to the other one. The seeds are choking thorns. The birds are maybe hanging in a mustard tree. But we also get this consistent image that reflects this. There's going to be some Pharisees in the kingdom of God. This is a tough thing for new believers because they come into a church and they, they oftentimes the first people that run up to the new people are the people that are the weakest in their faith. And, they, and, and Satan can use that to scare those people away or push those people away or shame those people away. Um, and, and one of those things that happens in the church is that there's leaven in it. And just like God said that the harvester is going to let them grow up together until they all come into the barn, in verse 33... They're gonna, he's going to leave the leaven and the bread, three measures of it, like until it's all been leavened, until it's all done. And that's when God can separate the air bubbles from the bread. And he, he can start to, to sort these things out. The church is going to be puffed up much larger than it actually is. And I, and I see that with this leavened bread. The, the kingdom of God <laughs> has sin in it, and that sin will make the church look much, much bigger than it is. For non-believers, you say something about the church, they're thinking of what they see on TV. They're not thinking about this Bible study, right? They're thinking of what they, they see when they go to the bookstore, right? And, and you see that the kingdom of God looks much bigger to the outsider than it is on the inside. That there are, there are much fewer people in the church honestly and persistently seeking the good soil in their heart than there are people that are not. Then we get to this prophecy and parables, verse 34. Again, these prophecies are pure joy, but they're not really something for non-believers to dig into. Like these are things that as a believer, you've got to bounce some of your experience off them to see if that interpretation resonates or not. Verse 34. All these things Jesus spoke to the multitude in parables. 
and without a parable, he did not speak to them. That it might be fulfilled which was spoken by the prophet, saying, I will open my mouth in parables. I will utter things kept secret from the foundation of the world. So in context of opposition to the Pharisees, Jesus uses these teachings to continue teaching his followers. The, the followers had the key. The owner of the field is God and everything else clicks into place. If you get who God is and God is Jesus and he's your king and we're all trying to bring the word of the kingdom of God to people, then all of this just makes sense. Or at the very least, you can hear how we just went through the parables and you can say, well, I like this better than what you just said, Sean. But, but there's going to be things that just the Holy Spirit helps you put it all together. And for a non-believer, the wheat and the bread makes no sense whatsoever. The things that are kept circlet, the secret in this passage, I'll open my mouth in parables, I will utter things kept secret from the foundation of the world. That's the kind of sentence that weird cultish things get built off of. There is no secret religion. The thing that's secret here is that the Old Testament doesn't explain the church and Jesus does explain the church. So what Jesus is explaining through the Gospels is the peace that's been secret since the foundation of the world. So he's going to build on that. God was going to reign a kingdom of free individuals that choose him. And, and he's been building that through the history of the world, starting from the Garden of Eden to the Noahic Covenant, the promise to Abraham, the Mosaic Covenant, Le Leviticus, which shows the priesthood as one of the ruling things. Then they build a nation of Israel under God from the tabernacle. Then they got judges to help keep them under God. And then they wanted kings. And then with the kings, they get prophets. And all of those stages of human history has fallen short. Jesus is going to do this thing. He's going to build a church that has endured for 2,000 years and will endure forevermore. This is the last model of what he's doing. It's a bridge between humanity and God. It's going to look puffy and big. This is like a large bride because it's got leaven in it. But eventually, he's going to get the leaven out. So... Like a large, you're laughing because I said large bride. This is a big puffy bride, right? She's really well fed on her, on her wedding day. But Jesus will shepherd her and he'll purify the church and he'll claim the church. And, it, and it's something that's good and holy. And he'll sort that out. Then he explains the parable of the tares. Again, this is the key with which we can go back and understand them. Verse 36, then Jesus sent the multitude away and went into the house. Jesus doesn't always teach out in the middle of the open air. And the disciples came to him saying, explain to us the parables of the tares in the field. You know, they're thinking about it. They're pondering it. They're questioning it. This is what God wants from his disciples. He's designed this. Think about these disciples. So he gives them the key. The, a number of disciples that would fit in a house in verse 36. We're talking about a small handful. And we got that list earlier in Matthew. This is probably just the twelve. Twelve people is what he gives this key to. Everybody else is going home going, I don't know what that guy's talking about. They're confused. Verse 37, he answered them and said, He who sows the good seed is the son of man. The field is the world and the good seeds are the sons of the kingdom, but the tares are the sons of the wicked one. So we're the plants in that particular one. In the, in the sower of the seeds, we're the ones throwing the seed. But you can easily shift that with a different key. The cipher looks really different. So where we're throwing seeds in the first parable, in this parable, we're the plants. We're the things that are growing in that church. Verse 39, the enemy who sowed them is the devil, 
and the harvest is, is the end of the age, and the reapers are the angels. So he gives all the keys to that parable. Therefore, as the tares are gathered and burned in the fire, so it will be at the end of this age. The Son of Man will send out his angels, and they will gather out of his kingdom, the church, all the things that offend, and those who practice lawlessness, and will cast them into the furnace of fire. There will be wailing and gnashing of teeth. Then the righteous will shine forth as the sun in the kingdom of their father. He who has ears, let him hear. It's interesting that he gives the keys and says, he who has ears, let him hear at the end of getting all the answers. Because even when we're handed the answers, we still have to process it. So the sower is God, the field is the world, the tares are false believers, the wheat are true believers, the enemy is the devil, and the reapers are this group of angels. Which, by the way, means Jesus believes there's angels. Because in this passage, this is not a parable. This is an explanation of a parable. So the seeds of the word are going out. Here's the sons of the kingdom. It's changed a little bit. And then we see that the word of God does become us. Oh, I, I love this thought. When the seed goes out, the word of God goes out in the first parable. The word of God is the seed, but then a plant grows up. It means that when we're believers, the word of God in us actually changes us into something different. So even moving from one parable to the other, I just thought that was a nice image. Because the word of God gets thrown out, but when it lands on our ground and the plant starts to form, we actually become the plant. We don't stay the ground. And I just thought that was kind of cool. Anyways, one interpretation of that. The word of God is very nigh unto thee. It's in your mouth. It's in your heart that you may do it. The, God, the godly of good soil accept and graft it in. I've hid the word of God in my heart that I might not sin against thee. When we put the word of God in our heart, it actually changes who we are. It changes our being. It changes where we fit in the parables. The field is this world. And in verse 41, it says, out of his kingdom. This is an interesting thing to kind of tune into real quick. So look at verse 38. The field is the world. And then it says in verse 41 that the Son of Man will send out angels and they will gather out of his kingdom all the things that offend. So the, if the kingdom is the kingdom of God, the church, but the, the field is the entire planet, then the gathering that's going to happen is actually happening out of the church. What happened to the rest of the world? And you have to think, Jesus is alluding to what's going to become end times belief systems that there is going to be a second coming, that there will be a time of tribulation. But at this point, the harvesting only happens from within the kingdom. It doesn't happen from the whole planet. Jesus has already said that he's the way, the truth, and the life. There's one way to heaven. And if you're not in the kingdom of God as a wheat or a tare, you're not even a target of harvesting. So this is one of the things that I get real worried about when I talk to somebody and they say they're a believer. And I say, oh, what church do you go to? Oh, I'm not really going to churches. Whoa, where do you think the gathering is going to happen? It's happening in the kingdom. And I get that the kingdom is not a building. But if you're not gathering with a body of believers, that's a huge red flag. And, and I might be reading a lot into this. I'm open to that. I get that. But it says they will gather out of his kingdom all the things that have failed. It doesn't say they'll gather from the field, which is the world. They're going to gather from within the church. There's going to be sinners in the church that don't get gathered. There'll be those that are pure of heart that do get gathered. And this is where in verse 42 it says, he'll cast them into the furnace and there will be wailing and gnashing of teeth. 
both of those phrases of wailing and gnashing of teeth are, are wailing is of sadness, disappointment. Gnashing of teeth is of anger and rage. There will be people upset that they did not get harvested for the kingdom of God. They think they're on the right path. There will be many that say, Lord, Lord, and he'll say, I didn't know you. I don't know who you are. But we, we prophesied in your name. We cast out demons in your name. Okay, you do anything you want in my name. It doesn't mean we know each other. It doesn't mean we have a personal relationship. So there's false teachings out there that saying, well, you don't need a personal relationship with Jesus. No, actually, you really do. You need to know him. And that should be something you actively pursue through the learning and the teaching of the word. But the point is, God's going to make that choice. And I think that's the point of this parable. God chooses it. Our job is to share the word. It's God's job to bring the harvest. And there's going to be that wailing and gnashing of teeth. Is lots of people don't, they never figure that part out. Again, remember, Jesus is talking to Judas Iscariot right now. Judas is hearing this teaching, and he still can't separate himself out. He's still going to get caught up by the world. Being a member of a church is conditional of where the harvesting happens, but it's not enough to separate you as a wheat or a tare. There's still that element too. I know I'm making it really complex, <laughs> but that's not my effort. My effort is that no one gets cast into the fire. And just saying I attend church makes me a good person does not get you to heaven. It doesn't do the job. You're, you're, you're there when you get passed by and people get gathered in that are good fruit. That's all that means. So you might as well not even come to church at that level. No, that's the wrong. I don't want to discourage people from going to church. Come to church because we don't know what happens till the end. But there's definitely this element of people that don't come to church, are, they're not even in the running, and there's people that do come to church that think that, the, that it's a gimme and they automatically get to go to heaven despite the corruption of their own hearts. And both of those are ways that you can fall to the left or to the right then righteousness will shine forth in verse 33. I mean, that's where the trumpets start coming in. Those that seek his word and find his, they find it. Those that seek his face, they get it. This is the good news. Anybody that wants to get to know Jesus, he promises he'll meet you there. And it doesn't matter how horrible you think you are, how sinful you think you are, just go spend some time with the Lord and he'll meet you in that spot. No matter how painful life is, go bring it to the king. Put your concerns and cares at his feet, and he's there. And I, that idea of righteousness, righteousness by definition in the Old Testament and for all the listeners of what Jesus is saying, the word righteousness, righteous means those that obey God's law. And God's law is laid out in the Old Testament. A law that we can't do on our own, but we're made righteous through the sacrifice of Jesus, which does obey the law of the Old Testament. So we become righteous in the teachings of Jesus Christ by obeying Jesus Christ. If we, so you can not hear God's word at all, the wayside people. You can hear it and then break under pressure, the stony people. We can hear it and get sidetracked, the thorny people. And then we can hear it and follow it, and those are the righteousest people. And that's the, that's the equation that God's there. And then he says, if you have hears, hear it, which forces the question. Again, parables force questions. Do I hear it? Am I getting it? Do I understand it the way Jesus wants me to understand this? As a, both a word of caution and a word of encouragement at the same time. Verse 41, do I offend? That's a good question. Do I make up my own rules where it says lawlessness? 
or do I just love God and obey God and I, and I follow the rules God has made? Verse 43, then the righteous will shine forth as the sun in the kingdom of, of, of their father. The beauty of that verse 43, it's not just good poetic writing. It's an image that everything that Jesus is talking about is worth pursuing. This is a lifetime quest. It's an adventure. Seek the Lord of your God and God makes you radiant. So over all the world, there's seeds, there's people growing up, there's lives being lived. And at the end of the day, God's going to take those precious plants and he's going to have an entire kingdom filled of these people. The people we get to meet in heaven are amazing people. And God's seeking throughout history, throughout time, and throughout space for those precious people that he's going to bring into his kingdom. The righteous will shine forth as the sun in the kingdom of their father. Their father's there because Jesus does the work. We simply humble ourselves, break the soil, and let the word of God take root in our life. And it just has fruit. He says again, <laughs> I'm going to give you the same idea in another way at the beginning of verse 44. Let me say this in just a slightly different way because I want you to hear it. The idea is that God's going to sort things out and he's going to hide some things for right now. Again, the kingdom of heaven is like the treasure in a field which a man found and hid. And for the joy over it, he goes and sells all that he has to buy the field. So again, in the context of verse 43, this is amazing. This isn't something to be anxious about. This is something to run towards. A treasure is worth everything. In Jewish law, if you find the treasure in the field and you dig it up, it belongs to the owner of the field. So Jesus is talking about like people's self-interest. They find a treasure in a field, they just bury it. <laughs> they, they go buy the field, and then when they dig it up, they own the field, they own the treasure. So this is based on Jewish law. Notice that it's a man that's finding and hiding. Uh, so like Jesus in these parallels, Jesus has a lot of joy over this. He's excited to do it. So the kingdom of heaven is like um, which a man found and hid for the joy of it and goes and sells all that he has in his field. Like the leaven being hid in the bread. Like the, the birds in the mustard tree, if you want to read it that way. Like the, the tares that are still in the wheat field. Jesus wants the whole field because there's wheat in that field too. And he wants the treasure that's buried in that church because he's going to seek that. I think God has watched over the last 2,000 years and all the heroes of the faith He's building his A-team for heaven, right? And he's going to gather those people and collect them. And for God, for the creator of the universe, this is the joy of creation, is he's getting these souls that are golden, that he purifies himself so that they can come unto him because they're righteous and they're holy just like he is. There's this washing and purifying. His bride is precious and made pure, not because we can make ourselves pure, but because God makes us pure so we can be in his presence. And God delights in that. Hebrews 12, 2, looking unto Jesus, the author and finisher of our faith, for, what, for the joy that was set before him, he endured the cross, despising the shame, and set it down at the right hand of the throne of God. It's all worth it. This whole thing is worth the trouble. It's worth digging on your hands and knees in the dirt to put that treasure down there because he's going to dig up that treasure someday. right? Or this could be read as though the hidden treasures in the kingdom are things we should be seeking. I've always heard the parable that way too. 
Verse 45 has the word again, which means we use the same keys as the previous parables. The kingdom of heaven is like a merchant. Again, a singular merchant, not merchants, not a whole field of merchants. It's like a merchant seeking beautiful pearls. And when he had found one pearl of a great price, he went and sold all that he had and bought it. I've, I've heard the pearl parable told so many ways that it's that we are seeking the kingdom of God and the kingdom of God is the pearl. And then I read it, and if you read it carefully, that's absolutely not what this verse says. It says the kingdom of God, the kingdom of heaven, is like the merchant. And that's the key to the parable. God is a merchant looking for pearls. Who are the pearls? We're the pearls. And when he founds, finds one of great price, it's worth everything to sell it and buy it. What's he talking about? He's talking about the fact that he's going to give his own life. He's going to give everything he has on the cross for one pearl. And it's worth it. That trade is worth it because those are the people that are going to light up the kingdom with him. So one treasure is worth everything combined. The sacrifice of Jesus on the cross, it's like he sold everything he had. And he's going to do it for you and for me. That's two pearls, right? Think of the deal God's getting from his perspective. It's all worth it. Or it, you know, it could just be read that we're seeking the kingdom of God. And, and, and again, it's a parable. There's no right and way it wrong because we don't get an interpretation of this parable. And it's like God's been training his disciples. They're supposed to figure this out for themselves. Verse 47 starts with again, which gives us the same key that we had before. But this time the kingdom of heaven is like a dragnet that was cast into the sea and gathered some of every kind. So same as verse 38. Which, when it was full, they drew it to shore, and they sat down and gathered the good into vessels, but threw away the bad. And so it will be at the end of the age. The angels will come forth, they'll separate the wicked from the just, and cast them into the furnace of fire, and there will be wailing and gnashing of teeth. Same as verse 42. Wait a second. If 47 is like 38 and 48 is like 42 we should be looking for a chiastic form in there somewhere because that language is getting repeated. This said, I dug and dug and dug, and I just don't see one. So I'm missing it this time. If we get back to this passage in a few years, maybe I'll see it then, or maybe you see it. Uh, verse 51, Jesus said to them, have you understood all these things? And they said to him, yes, Lord. By calling him Lord, think of what they just unlocked. They don't just say yes. They say, yes, Lord. They get it. At that level, they're seeing what they're supposed to see. Lest they should see with their eyes and hear with their ears. Verse, uh, lest they should understand with their hearts and turn so that I should heal them. Verse 15 of this chapter, we talk about seeing, we talk about hearing. But in verse 15, it also says understanding. So in verse 16, he says to the disciples, Blessed are your eyes for they see, your ears for they hear. But he never mentions understanding until here. Verse 51. All, everything between 51 and verse 15 is one package. And I think it's important to look at the Bible that way. It's not broken down into little sentences. It's broken down into big themes, big ideas, or chapters or sections. So when he asks them if they understand, he's finishing that thing that he started back in verse 15, lest they should understand with their hearts in turn so that I should heal them. If you understand what Jesus is talking about, he offers this healing. Right? And for those that shouldn't be in the kingdom, he doesn't want them to understand. And for those who are in the kingdom, then it implies he does want them to understand. So he asks about understanding, closes the loop. This is either 
just excellent writing on Matthew's part or it's just inspired writing on God's part. Verse 45, kind of the core of this, is that what God's doing with his field is, 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 is a pearl, a treasure, a dragnet, and gathering every kind. He's going to pull people from all ends of the earth, and this is the plan. Every tribe, every tongue, every nation, verse 47, every kind. And he's going to brawl them in, and he's going to take the good ones, and the bad ones are going to get thrown away. We never like to talk about the throwaway part, because we're talking about hell. Like, there will be people that don't get in. But as believers, if we see here and we understand, we don't want to be one of those people. And God says you don't have to be one of those people. So if you're concerned about going to hell, you're probably not going to hell. There's a solution to that problem. Mark 8, 35, whoever desires to save his life will lose it. But whoever loses his life for my name's sake and the gospels will save it. Simple solution. Then he said to them, verse 52, Therefore every scribe instructed concerning the kingdom of heaven is like a householder who brings out of his treasure the things new and old. He tells them another parable. And I think verse 52 is this side parable. Like, he just got done. He concluded everything. And do you understand all of these things? It's a conclusionary sentence in verse 51. And they say to him, yes, Lord. So it's over. That's the end of the story. And so he tags on this one. Then he says to them, after that happened, therefore every scribe, a scribe is someone who's educated enough to write in the first century. In that room, Judas Iscariot, likely a scribe able to write, and Matthew, likely a scribe able to write. Luke's not around yet. He gets hired later. Um, we don't see that Mark is hanging out with Simon Peter yet. So, And then we know John later on is able to write. We don't know if he learned that later or if as a Jewish child he learned that even though he was a fisherman, he learned to write. Um, but at this point, the, the professional scribe in the room is Matthew. So it's almost like Jesus kind of leans over and smiles and says, Hey, Matthew, you should maybe start writing this stuff down, <laughs> which I like because it becomes the Gospel of Matthew. So, and maybe he leans over to Peter and John and says, you guys need to work on your writing because you should probably write this down too. These parables end up in every one of the four Gospels. Therefore, every scribe instructed concerning the kingdom of heaven, they just admitted that they understood it, they have been instructed, this is them, is like a householder. You're responsible for some things. You have a household with these parables. And you bring out his treasure, things new and old. It's your job to bring these treasures to other people. We should be good at deconing. We've been trained. Now we're supposed to share this with other people. We're supposed to go out and tell parables. So when we talk to people and we're talking about what the kingdom of God is, we need to find ways to communicate that new and fresh. Or if we're not that creative, just use the parables Jesus gave us. Man, God's looking for pearls. Are you one of them? When he opens up that oyster, is he going to find a pearl or just a rock? you know, stony ground. So it says instructed in verse 52 in the past tense before sharing these treasures, both new and old, we should have learned. Instructed is past tense. Every scribe instructed, not every scribe to be instructed or would want to instruct others, but has been instructed. Those that want to teach should be those that come to the feet of Jesus to learn first. So don't be just teaching nonsense. So uh, Timothy 3.6 says the same thing. Not a novice. 
being lifted up with pride, lest he fall into the condemnation of the devil. People teaching the word should be people that have learned the word. They should understand it. Uh, and they, so we have mature people teaching the word. Uh, the treasure that Jesus makes here are the things that we are able to then have. I like the householder. He brings the, he's brought in a farmer. He's brought in kind of a fisherman image. He's talked about the, the, the treasure in the field image. And now he brings in a housekeeper, people that tend home. And when you tend home, you have something of value. Things old and new, he understands, I think Jesus understands at this point, that the words the scribes are writing down are going to be added as a New Testament. And they're going to combine the Old Testament with the New Testament, if that's what Jesus meant, and we, we have ears to hear it. Um, he's making a reference to the fact that there's going to be an Old and a New Testament that are going to come based on what these disciples write down after they've learned from Jesus. So this is, I, I don't know, I just like verse 52 because that's where we get that they were told to start writing and start gathering their stories, which would later then become the Gospels. Done in Jerusalem, he teaches the people in the synagogue uh, where uh, he's done convincing the Pharisees, he still goes to the people. So last week I said he never goes back to the synagogues. I, I, I apologize, I misspoke. He really never goes back to the Pharisees. But we see in verse 53 um, that he's gonna, he is going to come back and he's going to head back to his old town and he's going to go into a synagogue, but we just see that he's never really interacting with Pharisees from this point forward. I hope that makes sense, and I'm sorry I, didn't, I misspoke that last week. Verse 53, now it came to pass when Jesus finished teaching his parables that he departed from there. There is, he's walking away from Jerusalem back when the Pharisees kind of chased him down about picking the grains in the field, remember? Um, and by the way, his parables he's giving about the field are likely being given when he's standing next to a field. So the visual context of when he's given those parables is pretty powerful. When he'd come to his own country, verse 54, he taught them in their synagogue so that they were astonished and said, where did this man get this wisdom and these mighty works? So Jesus just keeps teaching. He just teaches differently. And he never really goes after those Pharisees. The villagers were his hometown. He's likely then in Nazareth at this point. Uh, they knew Jesus. They knew who he was. They knew that the guy they had grown up with was not capable of all this wisdom and works. There's something supernatural going on with Jesus. So part of where they're saying this, when they say in verse 54, this man, that's a derogatory term. They're not saying, where did Jesus get this wisdom? They're saying, where did this guy get this wisdom from? So they're talking about him in this really kind of cutting way. Uh, it's belittling to not use someone's name, even in the first century. It is today, too, um, which says something about Jesus being a fairly ordinary person. Like, they're just shocked that this ordinary guy is doing extraordinary things. Verse 55, is this not the carpenter's son? Is not his mother called Mary and his brothers James, Hosus, Simon, and Judah? And his sisters, are they all with us? Where then did this man get all these things? So again, Jesus is a carpenter. His family was modest. He's an ordinary guy with an ordinary job and he has an ordinary family. Why is he so extraordinary? Who does he think he is? We see his mother, his brothers, his sisters are all, this is a second reference to Jesus' family. Um, you know, this is just one of those things where people know who you were before the kingdom of God, and it's hard for them to understand who you are after you enter the kingdom of God. I have changed, and the thing that's made the difference is Jesus. But they did the same thing with Jesus too. He started his ministry, and they're still looking at who he was before he started his ministry. 
and they're not seeing the connection. Who is this Christian? They're so ordinary. People come into the church and they think Christians are extraordinary. We're just ordinary people. Normal. It's one of those things I think with pastors. When I first got saved, I thought of the pastor as this huge, amazing character in my life, right? The pastor. And it's so powerful. But then you meet, the more you get to know pastors, they're just guys. And, you know, they're just normal individuals. They're just people. And so it's one of those things where as humans, we, we like to think that those that are holy are somehow extraordinary in and of themselves. But even Jesus is an ordinary human being with a spirit of God in him, which makes him extraordinary. So I like the, the response of when people are like, man, I, you know, like I thought that you'd be more like this or like this. And a good response is, oh, I'm even worse than you think. Like I'm so ordinary. It's Jesus in me that makes me extraordinary. So, and, and when you look at pagan religions, often the spiritual leaders in these religions, they take up that mantle and they act like weirdos. Right? And you see this across different religions that humans create. The higher up the, the holy person is, and the, the more elaborately they dress, the weirder they talk, the more they become a holy person. I, I even get this in the church when you get like faith healers and stuff. They're shouting and they're yelling. There's nothing ordinary about how they operate. Therefore, it's likely not God. It's not the God we read in the Bible. The one that's like, who is this guy? Isn't, he the, isn't this the carpenter? The town carpenter? Even God himself did not make himself into a television evangelist. He's just a guy walking around teaching and healing and helping people. So people see normal and they think there should be something more than normal. And I think that makes it harder sometimes to, to accept the kingdom that, that it's not anything special. That's the whole point. You give up your images of what is supposed to be there and you accept what is there. So, verse 57, the result of that thinking is that they were offended at him. So they were offended at him. It had to break Jesus' heart that his own people rejected him. These are people he grew up with. This is his family, his friends. We know at this point that, that his brothers and sisters and, his, and Mary are not believers. So it's another indication that even Mary was not so holy at this period of time because nothing extraordinary is there. So they were trying to stop him because he was going too far. But Jesus said to them, a prophet's not without honor except in his own country and with his, in his own house. So verse 57 is pretty damning for Jesus' brothers and sisters and his mom. They don't, even in his own house, they don't believe him. Now he did not do many mighty works because of their unbelief. I want to, we're going to end on this because it's the end of the chapter, but it's a significant thing that they have unbelief in verse 58, but after the resurrection, we see Mary immediately at the tomb. We see James writing the epistle of James. We see that Jesus' brothers and sisters, they don't die in their unbelief and go to hell. They are basically unbelievers at this particular period in history, but they actually become the wheat. So they do get saved. They do come around. And, and in that, you see an example of the wheats and the tares. That these are people that, don't, that have unbelief right now, but he's going to let them grow and he's going to let time pass because that's not the end of their story. Just because somebody's not saved today doesn't mean that God isn't calling them in a couple weeks or even tomorrow. So I, I, there's an amazing amount of grace here that, 
Jesus is given no honor in verse 47, even from his countrymen and his house, but that's going to change immediately as the resurrected Christ. And these people will come to belief, and God knows that about people. It's not who they are today. So when you invite somebody to come to church or you invite somebody to say a prayer of salvation and they say no, that's not the last time they get an invitation. We keep inviting because it's just, we got to let God take time with people sometimes. So Jesus doesn't waste his time with these folks. He moves on. He skips with the Pharisees. Um, he doesn't do verse 58. He's not going to do any miracles with these people. Sometimes being ordinary is the best way for us to bring people into the kingdom. I think Jesus loved his family. I think we can assume that. So one of the reasons, it's not that he, when it says because of their unbelief, it's not because their unbelief stopped Jesus from doing powerful works. It's that they were unbelievers and, and he doesn't do mighty works. He's not going to throw pearls to swine. He's not going to sit and dazzle those people with things that they, that they haven't changed their heart already. So it's important to know that later they do become believers. So maybe the most powerful way for Jesus to convince his countrymen and his family was to just back off for a little bit, let them have some space. But he's also not going to show them all the wonders of the kingdom either. He's taught them everything they need to know. So this is, a again, not easy answers. This is the kind of chapter where you get done here, like, I got more questions than answers because we've been told how the word of God goes forth in different ways people receive it. We've been told how people grow in the kingdom and some people are tares and some people are wheat, which means we got to use discernment. It, we're, we're told that God's doing all of this because it's worth it and that's important. So we're given tools to share with people about the kingdom of God. And at the end of this passage, you get this idea that there's still a group of people that just don't get it. And they will get it but there's going to be some time that needs to happen and there's going to need to be a resurrected soul for their souls to be resurrected too. So blessed are those with ears to hear and eyes to see that they believe before all of that stuff. And that's his disciples that are following him around. So again, just it gets more complex in Matthew because now he's saying for my believers, I want them to use their brains. I want them to think strategically and deliberately about who they're talking to about their own hearts and where they're coming from and about how we're going to conduct ourselves in the world. And at the very end, verse 58, he's just not going to do mighty works in front of people that don't believe. It's not worth his time. Um, even though he's seeking a treasure, some of that treasure is going to stay hidden for a little bit, like Mary and James and, and his brothers and sisters. They're, it's just going to stay. They're going to be growing up with the rest of the field for a little bit of time and they look just like the tares, but they're actually wheat. Um, so again, that one of those passages that just we have to put our trust in the Lord God Almighty, and he's teaching his disciples to do exactly that. The kingdom of God's bigger than any ind individual. So trust him and move forward. Amen? Let's pray. Dear Lord King, um, Lord, it's hard to think and discern, but you've called us to do it. And Lord, you give us questions because they give us, you give us parables because they give us questions. And Lord, we praise you for that. That's the glory of God to hide something and the glory of kings to go find it. So Lord, we love the fact that you blessed us with the Sermon on the Mount that lays out the kingdom so clearly. But we also love the fact that you give us these parables, this set of parables 
that lay out the kingdom in ways that we have to search for it and find it. Uh, Lord, we pray for maturity. We pray our soul is broken up and that it's ready for the root of your word to take, take root in our hearts. Um, Lord, we want that seed to grow so that we become something new and different. We want your holy kingdom to come. Uh, Lord, we know that you're the Lord of the kingdom uh, and that that kingdom is going to grow and that the, the souls that you raise in it are going to grow. Well, Lord, help us to not be too worried about the leaven. Uh, help us to not be too worried about um, the tares. Uh, Lord, that's your business. Uh, help us to be worried about our own hearts and to grow up in you and in your kingdom. Lord, give us a great joy. We're such a neat week that we get to celebrate people accepting Christ and choosing you as their Lord and Savior. Lord, what a joy, what a celebration we have. And, and we know that the angels in heaven are celebrating with you. Lord, we also know that you have been answering those prayers. And we just thank you so much for that. We're just so excited, uh, Lord, that you can use us and, and that you can hear us. And Lord, that you respond to our prayers and, and that uh, people's hearts can change and move. And Lord, we know that your Holy Spirit does all of that. So we glorify you in your name. Uh, in Jesus' name, amen. If you found this teaching helpful, insightful, you can support this podcast by sharing it with a friend. Screenshot it, tag it, post it on your social media.